Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we will be able to get into the meat of uh, your word, uh, to understand it in its context and to see how it truly applies to us and how it's really relevant uh, to us today. And we pray that only through your Holy Spirit may we be able to do that and to uh, fully understand its impact on our life and our conduct. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, I want to warn you today of a very real and present danger to our salvation. My salvation, your salvation, and I think that the salvation of all people who call Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, if I were to ask you today, uh, what is the great, greatest danger to Christians' uh, salvation? What would you say is the greatest danger if you were to ask people, if you think about it? Well, some people would say that maybe it's persecution. Maybe some people would say it was the attraction to the things of this world or maybe falling into sin. Now these are all very real and relevant dangers and they happen all around us. We can see that happening to people around us. But I think that uh, these are visible signs of people losing their salvation. Uh, if people are persecuted, and they don't go to church, they give up Jesus Christ, we can see that. If people are attracted to things of this world, usually they will drift away from Bible study and church and stop coming to church. If people fall into sin, again, they stop calling themselves Christians and it's quite obvious that they are outside of God's kingdom. But I think that the, the greatest danger for uh, people's salvation, their souls, is the invisible one. And that's what the Bible tells us and I think what many commentators say today. That the greatest danger today and as uh, of any time is false teaching and false teachers. Because we can see churches full of people, we can see statistics of people calling themselves Christian, we can see people using Christian words and Jesus very often, and they think that they are saved, but actually they are not. So every time we see a building with the word church in front, it doesn't mean that it's filled with people who are saved, and every time we hear someone calling themselves a Christian, it doesn't mean that they are saved as well. So I think that's the situation that we are faced with in a 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, uh, it begins uh, very, it's quite a cryptic passage and that's why we're taking a bit of time to look at it. But if you look at verse 1, it says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but am bold towards you when away. Now, we know uh, over the last few weeks we've been going through the book of Corinthians, Second Corinthians, and we know that Paul uh, had a very big role to play in the Corinthian church. Um, okay, a bit more information about the Corinthian church. Oh, wow, so small. Okay, this is, uh, the red line represents uh, Paul's second missionary journey, as we understand from the Bible. And this is where he went from uh, here all the way to Corinth. And he stayed in Corinth for many years, one and a half years. And he uh, founded the church and ministered the church. But later on, as you can see from the arrow, if you can see the arrow, he moved on to Macedonia and went on to other places. And then he went back to Antioch. Now, after Paul had left and uh, he founded the church and he'd gone on his missionary journey, uh, some people came into the church in Corinth, as you can see in 1 Corinthians, as we saw a few years ago. And they had put themselves forward ahead of Paul the Apostle. They had attempted to draw... Uh, the, the Christians away from Paul to themselves. Now, if you look in your Bibles, and that's why you need your Bibles, we, we actually uh, don't know what their names were, but Paul calls them in chapter 2, chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, 
verse 5, he calls them super apostles. Okay? And in chapter 12, verse 11 of 2 Corinthians, he also calls them uh, super apostles. Now, uh, we don't know them by name, but I guess the very fact that he calls them super apostles uh, tells us a bit about them, that they were quite arrogant and they put themselves above and, and um, beyond the apostles, including the apostle Paul. And one of their tactics, uh, as we were reading 1 Corinthians, and as we see here in 2 Corinthians, was that to put themselves ahead of the apostles and put themselves ahead of Paul, part of their tactic was to tear down Paul and to slander Paul and to smear Paul's name. And uh, one of the ways that uh, Paul writes Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, is he, he often quotes what the, the people are saying about him. So in chapter 10, verse 1, we can see that these people, the super apostles, were saying that Paul was timid when face to face, but bold when he was away. Right? That's what we can see in verse 1. That's what they're saying. He's quoting it back to them. Now we know that uh, Paul was very bold and very fierce in his letters when he was away from them. So if you look up here, we've seen uh, the letters that Paul wrote. We wrote if you read one Corinthians, you can see he's very bold or fierce in criticizing several things. We know that we lost, we don't have uh, the letter, the third letter, which was the harsh letter, but we know that obviously it was a very bold letter because it was, he, even he himself called it a very harsh letter, right? But Paul was bold because there was reason to be bold. There was sexual immorality in the Corinthian church. A, a stepmother was sleeping with her son and the church was tolerating it. There were lawsuits among church members. There was one upmanship in terms of spiritual gifts. There was idolatry in terms of food practices. There was the wrong attitude in terms of the Lord's Supper. So Paul had to be bold. Paul had to be straightforward and tell them that they were wrong. But it was not Paul's nature. It was not his, the nature of his ministry to be bold like this. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, which we already read earlier on, uh, I think last year, we see there, right? He says, uh, I wrote to you as I did, so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So Paul's leadership, Paul's Christian leadership, was not that of an iron-fisted leader. He wasn't bold in that way, right? It caused him pain to, to, to rebuke people and correct people this way. Uh, Paul was not like uh, Donald Trump. Okay? Uh, Paul was not like Jose Mourinho. Uh, Paul was not like uh, Alex Ferguson. Okay? If you don't know the last two people, that means you don't follow soccer. But you all know Donald Trump. Okay? Because Paul's ministry, as he says in uh, verse 1 here, was characterized by humility and by gentleness. That was the way Paul exercised his ministry. And that's why they were accusing him of being timid. But why did Paul exercise his Christian leadership with meekness and gentleness and humility? Well, that was because that was the model of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself was humble and was gentle. Okay, so the next slide, the next one. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, is this one? Yeah, that's right. So it says here, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Again, in Philippians chapter 2, uh, it said that Jesus, even though he was powerful, yet he humbled himself. So Paul exercised ministry in a humble, gentle, and in a, a, a meek way. In the same way, we know from the Bible that in Galatians, next slide, in Galatians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3, uh, for those of us who are saved, who have the Holy Spirit in us, one of the fruits of the Spirit is gentleness and self-control. And in Colossians chapter 3, it says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So humility, gentleness, meekness are actually positive marks of Paul's Christian leadership. Uh, these were commendable things. But the problem was for the super apostles, they had turned it into negative things. So they said, how can Paul be a good Christian leader? Look, he is bold when he's far away, but when he's in front of you, he is timid. So they saw meekness as weakness. They saw gentleness as softness. They saw timidity in a worldly way, where they say, you know, how can a leader be timid? Because, you know, timid means that you have low self-esteem, you're hiding in a corner, you will cringe from confrontation. It, it reflects the fact that you recognize that you have no ability or talent in any way. But for Paul, leadership was all about humility, gentleness and kindness. Because that was the quality of Jesus Christ and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So for Paul, he saw humility in terms of generosity with the flaws of others, patience, benevolence, uh, looking out for the interests of others before himself, just like Jesus Christ. But what had happened was, uh, the qualities that the Corinthians saw in the world, they were trying to bring into the church itself. So, if you uh, look at the next slide. So remember Corinth, uh, we saw last few weeks was here, and it was a very powerful major city. It was uh, like Singapore, a major port. And they would, in the business world, see leadership in terms of power, strength, decisiveness, uh, you know, harshness even. So they took those qualities and they imposed it upon the church. And that's what the super apostles were doing. But Paul was saying those are the wrong qualities because these are not Christian qualities, but the qualities of the world. But rather you must find the qualities of leadership from Jesus Christ. Now, I think that's a really important lesson for us in, as, a, as a church, isn't it? Because as a church, we are not a corporation. And as Christian leaders, we are not CEOs or general managers. So we do not take the values of the secular world and bring it into the church and Christianize it. But rather, we take God's word, we take Jesus Christ as our model, we take the fruits of the Holy Spirit to teach us what Christian leadership is about. But unfortunately, when you look at many churches out there today, you see the sad reality that actually the values of the world have been brought into the church. So, I'm going to give you a few illustrations, and they're all real, okay? So, someone was telling me how uh, they visited uh, a mega church a few uh, months ago, and apparently, the song leader made a mistake. 
during the corporate worship time. Now, if you notice that in our, in our service, the song leader makes a mistake. Quite often sometimes, right? Okay? But we don't mind, right? Because we're all volunteers. But apparently, in this mega church, the song leader made a mistake and the pastor scolded the song leader to such an extent that in front of everybody, she started crying. And another church uh, that I went to, I remember listening to this pastor, and the pastor spent 10 minutes saying that the reason why we are, we've grown is because I had the ability to lead this many people and the church was too small, so the church grew to meet my ability. I went to another church where I heard where the church camp uh, committee uh, asked the pastor and said, you know, we need the sermon outlines soon so that we can put it into the church camp bulletin. And the pastor's reply was, I'll give the sermon outlines when I'm well and truly ready. If the volunteers don't like it, they can step down as they wish. Uh, at another church uh, I visited once before, it was a dedication of a new building, and the elders stood up and said, oh, the reason why we could afford this building is because of all these things that we have initiated, all these plans that we have put in. And it became so much so that the guest speaker actually felt embarrassed and stepped outside for a moment because it was all about what we had done. Now, this is all acceptable if you were a CEO of a corporation, if maybe you were Steve Jobs or Donald Trump. But it's not suitable and acceptable in the church, you see. Because the church leadership, Christian leadership, is not about uh, boastfulness or self-promotion or strength or even harshness, but it's modeled on Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul, in his very first verse, seeks to rebuke the Corinthian church by saying, look, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. Because he's trying to say that his model of leadership is based on Jesus Christ, not the boldness that the Corinthian Christians expect from the super apostles who come from the secular world. So it's it's a wrong worldview that has been brought into the church in Corinth about leadership. Right? They wanted the Donald Trumps, but actually Paul was saying Christian leadership is about meekness and gentleness and humility. Now Paul goes on in verse 2 to verse 5 to say that, look, it is not just the wrong idea of Christian leadership that they have, they've also brought in the worldly values of success into their church. Because he says, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Now that's a really weird verse and it's really hard to understand, isn't it? What does it mean uh, when he says, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold sorry, uh, towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Now, when you look at this uh, passage again, you can see that the, the, the super-apostles were criticizing Paul. Now, uh, obviously it's not the whole church, right? Because in verse 2 he says, I beg you, and the you that is plural, so he's begging the whole church again. He's not demanding. He's not saying, I command you as an apostle, but I, I beg you, right, as an apostle, that you may not be seduced or uh, taken in by some people. So some of those people, the super apostles, were deceiving them. And what were they deceiving them about? They think that Paul lives by the standard of this world. 
Now literally what the, the verse is, if you, if the literal translation is, that Paul was walking in a fleshly way. He was living according to the flesh. Now what a, a, a weird thing to say, isn't it? That Paul was living according to the flesh. What does it mean to live according to the flesh or the standard of this world? Well, we already know that they've been criticizing Paul. First of all, he's timid. And now, they're saying that he is living according to the flesh. And what it really means is, Paul is second class because he's fleshly. Right? He's living uh, in, a, in an inferior, lower level because he's living according to this world, the fleshly way. Whereas the super apostles, they were living in a spiritual way, a higher way. So we know that uh, from 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church was really attracted by spirituality. You know, they were really into spirituality. And the super apostles were saying that they were really super spiritual. That's why they were super apostles, right? Super spiritual. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you look up here, if you remember, uh, last time we did 1 Corinthians, uh, again, Paul quotes what they're saying, right? Everything is permissible for me. That's what they were quoting in the, in the Corinthian church. But then Paul rebuked them, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So the Corinthian church had this idea that, that the more spiritual you were, the less you could worry about the body. So if you're super spiritual, like the super apostles, you could sleep with a prostitute, but it didn't matter because it was just the body, right? Uh, if I'm really spiritual, the body doesn't matter. But obviously Paul said, no, that's wrong. Uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, he, he showed that that was wrong. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, next slide. Um, you could see that uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in the church in Corinth, they were trying to outdo each other in spiritual gifts. Right, so uh, Paul rebuked them and said, look, they're different gifts, but the same spirit. They're different kinds of service, but the same Lord. They're different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now, each one of the manifestations of the Spirit is given for the common good. And then he went on to talk about different parts of the body all serving together, remember? So, the Corinthian church, they had the problem of wanting to be more spiritual. Spirituality is good. And the super apostles were tapping into that. They were saying, look, we are super spiritual and Paul is fleshly. Paul is fleshly. So as we will see as we go along, the super apostles say, you know, God gave me this vision and I could see all these things. I could, you know, I, I can do all these things. No miracles. I can do miracles. Uh, I close my eyes and things happen. I touch people and they're healed. All those things. So what these super apostles were doing were, they were trying to prove their credentials by their spirituality. And they would pour their energies into impressing people. That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to impress people. But what does Paul say that his energies are poured into? He's not here, he says, to pour energies to impress people with spirituality. But instead, what does he spend his time doing? In verse 3, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments 
and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. See, the super apostles' aim in life was self-promotion. They want to show how good they are, how spiritual they are, how big a church they have, how large a following they get, how rich they are. Paul's aim in life was Christ's promotion, God's promotion. That's what the passage says there, isn't it? His aim is threefold, to make the knowledge of God known and to make every thought obedient to Jesus Christ. See, in every way, Paul's aim was to bring people's life and minds under the Lordship of God and Jesus Christ. He uses military uh, analogies, right? He's here to demolish strongholds. In the ancient world, uh, the the rich cities have a city wall. Okay? And behind the city wall, I'm I'm sure if you watch Lord of the Rings, you can remember it. Behind the city walls, there is a stronghold. So when the wall is broken, everybody goes to the stronghold. That's like the strong part of the city, the last defense of the city. And Paul says, his aim in life is to demolish the stronghold. Not in a military sense, but in a sense of rebellion in people's hearts. It means that, you know, even though you break through the first wall, there's another wall, there's a stronghold. It means that in every person that he meets, he wants to demolish a stronghold so that God would be the master and ruler of that person. He wants to demolish arguments and pretensions which set itself up against the knowledge of God. Arguments are intellectual opposition against God. And Paul says he wants to demolish all those intellectual opposition against God, to stop people accepting God. He wants to demolish the pretensions. The pretensions are the hard attitude against God. Rebellious pride, skepticism, superiority, a cynical attitude. He wants to demolish all that for the knowledge of God. And he wants to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. It's like an army, right? And they go into enemy territory, they want to capture uh, uh, um, a a particular position. That's what he's doing. He's taking every thought captive uh, so that it will be obedient to Christ. Now, it's such a contrast because the super apostles had a worldly view of success. They want to impress people by their spirituality. Impress people by the size of their following. Impress people, as we will see later, with their speech and their rhetoric. But Paul was only interested, not in impressing people, but to demolishing every obstacle to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that every thought and every person would bow before Jesus Christ. Now, I think this is such an important lesson for us today, isn't it? Because as churches, what do we spend our time doing? What do we pour our energies doing? Are we more like the super apostles who want to impress and impress and impress either the world or other people with the size of our church, our wealth or the building or the the gifts that God has given us? Or are we like Paul whose only aim is to capture people's minds and hearts and will for Jesus Christ? Uh, a few weeks ago, a church member at our church was telling me how they've, they've heard of some church 
uh, who be unnamed, who, who have moved to the prosperity gospel, and they, they, they even um, they changed their church hall even to uh, mimic uh, the big mega churches so that you know the, the strobe lights and everything in the hall. And you're saying how the church has really grown, but they've given up the gospel. I heard of a real life situation in America where uh, the leaders of the church um, came up with a plan and a vision for the church and all of it was measured in terms of finances and numbers. And the elderly pastor who was there, who was a faithful pastor, pastored many, many years because he couldn't meet the finances and the numbers target, he was asked to leave. See, these are success based on pagan values brought into the church. Isn't it? This, is, this is worldly values of success, which is Christianized, based on impressing people by size and numbers. But Paul's aim is really very different. It is to demolish strongholds against God, to demolish every argument and pretension, capture every thought for Christ. That should be our aim, because that's God's aim, that's Jesus Christ's aims. Not our glory, not my glory, not the glory of BTPC, but to capture every thought and to demolish every stronghold and thought and argument and pretension against God. If we fail to do that, then we are actually not doing God's will and the church ultimately dies. So if you go to the West, if you go to uh, England, Europe, I, I know that many of you have gone on holidays recently to Europe. And I'm sure uh, I've spoken to some of you and you've seen some beautiful churches. And the only problem is many of those churches are empty. Right? That, that's why, you're, 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 that's why you, the tourists can go in every day because they're empty, right? Okay? If they weren't empty, then you wouldn't be allowed to go in all, this, all the time. Now, why are they empty? You know, if you ever ask yourself, why is it all these wonderful cathedrals that are so big are empty? And I remember asking a few pastors who've come through Singapore in the past, and said, why, what did the church do wrong that caused all these churches to be empty? And more than one of them have said to me, is it because they failed to engage with the issues of the time. They failed to engage with society. Because when the people were growing up, they said, well, you know, you come to church because you were born an Anglican, or you were born a Lutheran, or you were born a Calvin, or you were born Reformed, so we expect you to come to church. But they didn't demolish strongholds, you see. They didn't demolish arguments and pretensions and capture every thought for Christ. So when people, young people came and said, what about, what about evolution? Does evolution overturn the Bible? They didn't engage and demolish and, and seek to win those people over. They said, well, don't, you, don't worry about that. You just come to church, you know, because your family was Anglican for the last five generations. And when people came and said, well, what about science? Does science overturn how we understand the Bible? Again, they didn't put their thought and demolish those arguments and seek to capture every thought for Christ and win those people over. You know, when people came with postmodern thinking of multiculturalism and relativism and absolute truth, and all these different religions coming to society because of immigration, again, didn't, didn't seek to demolish those thoughts or capture those arguments. But instead, like some of them were telling me, they were busy with council meetings, busy with all sorts of things. I remember a Lutheran, uh, a, a German missionary from a Lutheran church says, 
The worst thing that ever happened to the Lutheran church was when it became part of the state church. Because then the church was more interested in politics than in winning souls. See, that's what Paul was trying to do. Paul's aim was not to impress people, to build a bigger church, to show a spiritual gift, but to win people for Christ. I have a classmate in Australia, and this reflects exactly what I'm talking about, um, who's an Anglican, and he says that uh, he wants to start a Bible study. The only problem is, the Bible study is across a road. And the road is actually in somebody else's parish. So in order to start this Bible study in this other parish, he had many, many meetings with the bishop to give him permission to start the Bible study across the road. You see, can you imagine what God must be thinking? That here we are seeking to demolish strongholds, demolish arguments, demolish pretensions and to win and capture people for Christ and here my friend is wasting time arguing whether he can actually start a Bible study across a road. You see, this shows that people have world's value, the worldly values of protecting their turf, protecting you know, various parish boundaries but not doing God's will. So in the same way as we look at ourselves, we must keep asking ourselves in everything that we do, Are we doing it to save souls? To demolish every stronghold against God and every argument, every pretension and capture every thought for Christ. Now we come to the last verse where Paul says, a very strange thing again, it makes you have to concentrate, and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Now, uh, it's kind of the sentence doesn't make sense, isn't it? Um, why will he need to punish every act of disobedience when they're already obedient? If the obedience is complete, how, why does he need to punish every act of disobedience? It's like, it's like you're ready to punish, but no, no disobedience to punish, right? It's because verse 6 is actually linked to verse 5, isn't it? He says, he's here to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So what he's saying is when every thought of theirs is obedient to Christ, then they will be ready to punish every act of disobedience. See, the problem with the Corinthian church was that they had not made every thought obedient to Christ. They had allowed the pagan secular values of the world to come into the church and to Christianize it and to make it look as if it was part of the church, but it wasn't because they hadn't made it obedient to Christ. So what Paul is saying is, when you have, have, be, have become ready to make every thought obedient to Christ, then you will be ready to reject and resist all this wrong teaching of the super apostles on leadership and on success and on doctrine. But at the moment, they are not ready, isn't it? Because they had not made their obedience complete in terms of making every thought obedient to Jesus Christ. See, I think that's the same for us, because if you look at verse 1 to 6, he appeals to the whole church, because there were some in the church, the super apostles, who were teaching the wrong thing. 
it wasn't as if the whole church was, was learning the wrong, uh, you know, subscribing to what the super apostles, the small group of super apostles were saying. It was that they were tolerating what the super apostles were teaching. And Paul was worried for them because it was like uh, some sort of disease which was spreading through the Corinthian church because they were tolerating this wrong behavior. And that came about because they hadn't made every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Now, I think that's the same lesson for us, isn't it? I wonder whether for us, we are unwilling to, to discipline wrong teaching in our midst because we don't want to make every thought captive to Jesus Christ. We allow the values, the thought processes, the worldview of the outside world to come into the church, but we are unwilling to make it captive and to actually put it under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are not willing to actually impose discipline and say, look, this is no part of the church. This is no part of God. So, a few things I could think of in terms of our world culture and history. So, actually, if you, I actually like history. History is very interesting for me. I studied in school and I studied in uh, theological college. Now, if you, if you look at uh, 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 the women's liberation movement, the women's liberation movement actually really started in World War II. Because in World War II in America, for the very first time, when all the men went to war, the women started working. So even after the men came back, uh, the, the women were really entrenched and began to do things. They really broke down the barriers and, and people say, hey, look, women are equal to men in many ways. And that progressed through the 60s until today. And uh, it's, it's, in some instances, it's reached such an extreme. I remember reading either in a Time magazine or New York Times where in America... There are people who actually say that men are redundant, apart from their sperm. Lah, okay? So you have women who, who basically uh, don't need men at all, and they just get uh, sperm from some anonymous donor, usually some rich, smart person. They always want doctors or somebody, right? Or some PhD person. And they impregnate themselves, and then they have a baby, and uh, they don't need any men in their life. So this is the environment that we live in. The environment that we live in says that basically men and women are equal and they are interchangeable in every way. So that's the value of society and today we bring it into the church and basically we say that men and women are interchangeable in every way. So in the role of marriage, well, it doesn't matter who is husband and wife, they all are the same. There's no roles in marriage. And the same in church leadership. But that means that we're actually taking the values of the outside world and bringing it into the church and we're not listening to what? God says in His Word. And that means that we are not actually making every thought captive to Christ. In the same way, again, if you read history, if you, are, you know, if you go and look it up on Wikipedia or whatever, you ask yourself, where did the gay lobby or the gay movement start? And that started in the 60s in America, particularly. And I, th- I think in the 1970s uh, or 80s, the, the most significant thing that happened in America for the gay lobby was they actually lobbied the American Psychiatric Society to say that you're not allowed to treat a gay person who wants to become straight because being gay is not an illness so you cannot treat someone who wants to become straight if they're gay. And uh, even today now, homosexuality, is, as you can see, is being legalized around the world and even in America, where the electorate, if they vote that they don't want gay marriage, they have petitioned the Supreme Court to say it's unconstitutional and you must have uh, same-sex marriage. So again, in the environment of society, it's becoming more and more pro-gay. 
And as a result, many, many churches adopt the environment of society and bring it into the church. And uh, I know in Singapore, we are very conservative society, but I remember speaking to a young uh, theological student. I said, uh, what do you think about gay marriage? And he'd finished his theological studies and he said to me, well, actually, I haven't decided yet on whether gay marriage is correct. I'll decide on what my church tells me to do. Now, obviously, maybe that shows a difference. I don't feel very old, right? But that shows a difference in what young people think or older people think. Right? So again, it's the environment which informs the environment of the church, which is wrong. What, what Paul was saying is, every thought and everything we do in church must be conditioned by what God says and not what the world says. Again, if you look at the prosperity gospel, if you look at church history, the prosperity gospel is a very new phenomenon which has not happened in church history in the same way as today. And uh, it's based really in urbanized, consumer, uh, materialistic, industrial countries. You do not find the prosperity gospel in places like Iran, Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan. Why? Because there is no such thing as a prosperity gospel if you're a Christian in those countries. Because when you become a Christian in those countries, you do not become blessed or richer. You are not allowed to go to university. You might get sacked from your job. So there is no prosperity gospel in those places. But the prosperity gospel only grows in places where there are people who are urbanized, where there is consumerism and materialism. Again, it is the society which is brought into the church. And once again, it is the failure of people who have not been obedient in completion and brought every thought into alignment or, as it says here, brought every thought obedient to Christ or captive to, to Christ and therefore we are willing to accept all this thinking. Now, I think that as a church, it's therefore so important for us to always be clear on what we believe in and reject what the Bible does not accept. And we, we, you know, the problem is that uh, it's another problem of society in the sense where in the environment that we live in, we are not meant to judge people. That's another attitude that we have brought into the church. Because if we judge people, then it is not loving. That's what people say, right? So we live in a world which is uh, tolerant of many different views, which is uh, subjective. So your belief is the same as my belief. And uh, my belief is the same as your belief, as long as we're sincere, we believe the same thing. It is a world of relativity. Uh, There is no absolute truth, there is just relative truth. Well, you believe something, and you believe something, there's no absolutes, everything is relative. So the same attitude is brought into the church, isn't it? Where we cannot judge people. I remember, um, okay, I, I know some of you know that I like to write into, actually I don't write to the newspaper very often, sometimes I do. But I write to different things when things irritate me. So I remember a few, a few years ago, I was listening to the radio. I won't tell you which radio station. And the DJ uh, criticized somebody, some celebrity, who was saying something about uh, some issue. And they said, quote unquote, Oh, I hate people who judge. Because to judge is to hate. And I only believe in love. So now I was like, okay, off the cuff remark. But then it really bugged me, you see. So I wrote into the radio station and said, no, how can this person say that? You know, because then you're saying that you hate me because I judge, right? And things like that. But that's the view of the world, right? I mean, if you really ask your friends out in the real world, outside, 
you know, uh, outside the church, and you ask them, that's how they think. To judge is to hate. And I don't hate because I love. So if I love, I cannot judge. But we cannot have that view among God's people, right? Because God calls us to make every thought captive to Christ. And if Christ says this is the way we do it, then we must judge things outside of that. And we mustn't feel shy, isn't it? So I remember in our own youth group, a few years ago, I remember one girl, I was told this, actually said, disagreed with uh, the youth leader, and said that she felt that homosexuality was alright. And the youth leader had trouble, and I said, well, you have to make it clear that the Bible says very clearly that yes, okay, you can do whatever you feel like doing, but homosexuality is not right in God's eyes. There is not relative truth, or what you feel is the truth, there is just what the Bible says. There is another uh, church, uh, another Presbyterian church, where the pastor told me how he was really worried because there were these Bible study leaders who were teaching this thing called the New Perspective. And if you ever look it on the uh, internet, the New Perspective is this new movement which is going around in theological circles which basically says that you don't need to be saved by grace alone. You can be saved by grace plus extra stuff. And I said, well, you need to say something, isn't it? You can't just say, well, we'll just let them lead because we don't have any other Bible study leaders because what they're teaching is wrong. So, we mustn't feel that we cannot judge. I, I remember speaking to an elder and this elder said, ah, yeah, why are you worry about all these things, you know, prosperity, gospel, uh, uh, people speak in tongues all the time, uh, you know, uh, gay marriage, all that. you should celebrate the diversity. That's what he told me. And that's what the world says, right? We must celebrate the diversity. But then I was saying to him, I said, no, because gospel truth is absolute. You cannot celebrate diversity if it's against what God says. Especially if it is within the church. So I remember what someone said, if you don't stand for anything, you will fall. Sorry, if you don't stand for something, uh, you will fall for anything. So ultimately... As we begin chapter 10 to 11 and 12, which is just the beginning of what Paul is saying, this is the very real danger that the Corinthian church faced. And I think this is the very real danger that many Christians face today. That we must take every thought captive and obedient before Christ. Every pretension, every argument, every stronghold of rebellion within us must be demolished by God and God's word. And we must seek in church only to do what is right before him and to see that actually to allow values and thought processes and worldviews to come in from outside to come into our midst and to actually say that yes they are Christian is actually to fool ourselves and actually to put our salvation at risk so truly as we stand before God today let our aim not be to impress people to impress the world but to seek only to do everything that God and Jesus tells us to do. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly pray that we will not be seduced by the values and the worldview and the attitudes of this world to bring it into our midst as your people and to Christianize them and say that they are acceptable. But rather, may we hear the rebuke of Paul 
your apostle, who warned the Corinthian church so clearly about their attitudes of Christian leadership, about Christian success, and to warn them that they must, they must not tolerate uh, the wrong teaching among their midst. And they must call it as it is. And they must actually choose to, uh, to bring it under punishment and to reject it. Help us to see that this is not something trivial, something we can just tolerate or uh, linger in our church, but rather in everything that we do, we must bring every thought, every pretension, every argument, everything must be brought under the Lordship of your Son, Jesus. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.